This program is supported by Pharmacyclics, an AbV company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc. You hear the big C word and you're like, oh gosh, I think you have to prepare yourself for a little bit of a roller coaster ride um, as you go through the ups and downs. Roller coaster ride is the best way of putting it right there. At the risk of losing Husband of the Year award, I'm going to go ahead and be honest. I was a little insensitive a couple of times. That was kind of a wake up call for me. Welcome to episode two of Caregiver Life Hacks CLL Edition. I'm Alora Nanos, your host for this series. In our previous episode, we discussed the impact of the initial diagnosis, finding your way, and finding your people. In this episode, we meet up with two devoted husbands who are caregivers to their wives who are in different stages of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL. Ted Walsh lives in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina and works in the biomedical industry. Ted found out that his wife, Laura, had CLL just three months before their wedding date. Our other guest is Scott Fuller from Trophy Club, Texas, where he's the director of golf course maintenance at a country club. Scott has been married for 32 years to his wife, Christina, who was diagnosed with CLL in 2018. Both Scott and Ted feel the weight of their wives' leukemia journey. So Scott, one of the questions I have for you is when Christina was diagnosed, can you tell me a little bit about how you felt during her diagnosis when, when you got that information? Uh, my reaction was, why not me? I asked that over and over and over and over because long before I ran and, and stuff like I was a chain smoker for years and um, I've never been much of a healthy person and, and I'm just going, it's not fair because she always ate well, you know, occasional glass of wine. She didn't smoke. She did what you're supposed to do. And and that's my initial reaction was just over and over, why her, why her, it needs to be me, it needs to be me. And I said that a million times, it just was not fair. I just want to, you know, kind of go down that, that path a minute. If it had been you and not her, do you think that Christina would have been different as a caretaker for you than the way you are for her? Um, a lot more caring about it. I think she would have been a much better caregiver than myself. I mean, just the way she is with her kids and her grandkids and stuff and and, and with me over the years. Uh, she's just an incredible woman. And uh, I would have been in some pretty good hands had it been me. Does it feel sometimes like you wish that you could be for her what she would have been able to be? Yeah, to, to an extent. Yeah, because I, I know probably I could I could be a lot better at it than I am. But like I said, I, you know, I try to do what I can do. One of the things that I that you know I wanted to talk about that is really specific to chronic lymphocytic leukemia is the invisibility of it because you get a diagnosis and you're not immediately you know in a bed you know in in sort of the mental picture of someone who is a cancer patient you know it doesn't look like that I think that diseases that are not apparent on the surface cause like a, a really complex array of behavior and emotions that go with it. So I, I would love to hear just about how, how the kind of invisibility of CLL has affected you both. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the, the invisibility is, it's tough. It, it's a real, it's when you're in wait and see, because you have no idea what the treatment's going to look like when you start having symptoms, whatever it may be, um, and when. 
you just don't know. I mean, she could go on like this for a long time or next month it could turn around, you know, and we may be going in for treatments. CLL typically progresses over time and it can be years before treatment is required. Patients are initially in a watch and wait phase where they have time to gather information and adjust to their new normal. Each phase can cause its own kind of anxiety. Ted was curious about the path ahead. Scott, how long have you been in the, or you're, you're doing the treatments? Uh, it's a clinical trial out of UT Southwestern. They, it would be an 18-month clinical trial, and they're really not looking for a cure. They're looking for a treatment. And the way it was explained to us, similar to uh, high blood pressure, where every day you wake up, take a pill, and you live a decent life. And that's what we're hoping on. Uh, no evidence of cancer, obviously, is, is the end result, but or we hope. And how much does it change between, because you had the experience with the wait and see versus the, the treatments, is, there, is that a huge bump? I mean, is there a, is there a significant difference between wait and see and then once you, you start oh, yeah. going yeah. into the treatments? Yeah. And, you know, you were talking about the mental aspect, we both were, of wait and see how that tough that is. And you're like, man, I, you know, I just wish they'd treat me. But then you get into treatment. It's like, I wish I was back. And now I envy you. <laughs> I wish that we were back and wait and wait and watch, watch and wait. The treatments were a relief once we found they were about to start because it's like, OK, now we're going to get better. And as her blood cell count, because they went up pretty high and they, the hers, you, you mentioned yours sometimes will get better. And then hers just kept every single visit getting worse and worse and worse. Yep. And so did her, the way she felt and the, the hot flashes and the, and the fatigue. Oh my gosh. She was always yep. just tired, worn, completely worn out. And, you know, and then you have the side effects that go along with the treatments. Um, right. You know, you've, that's a whole nother issue, but um, yeah, you're, you're relieved when, when you finally get to go to treatment because you're like, okay, now somebody's going to do something about this. Uh, but that's, that's what I'm always wondering sort of is what does it look like with that transition between wait and see and treatments? And my understanding too, as you suggest with the treatments, again, it's a therapy. It's something, it doesn't cure the cancer. You'll never cure it. Well, we don't have anything today that will cure it, but you exactly. can, it's yeah. therapeutic. I like so that you, correction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's moving it's, fast. There's a lot yeah. going on out there. It's that's the positive part about all yep. this, you know, but then again, you can feel great. And then that treatment may slack off or something and you, you may have to do another type of a treatment. So it's, it's just this, I think you have to pre prepare yourself for a little bit of a roller coaster ride um, as you go through the ups and downs. Roller coaster ride is the best way of putting it right there. That's exactly. Yeah. I bet. Fact is, when you're in wait and see, it's a real mind game. And then to top it off, you know, my wife at her age, she's 53, she's going through menopause, and she goes through sweats at night sometimes. Sounds like a real party. Right? It's like, okay, is this CLL? Is this menopause? Is what, what is going do, on? So, here? do you do that a lot? Do you do the, the is this cancer or is this something else yes. game a oh, lot? Yes. 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 Yeah. yes. That's the mind game with me right now. When you're in like that that state of uh, sort of anxiety over is it CLL or is it something else and should I be worried and is it time to kick into high gear? I just ask her questions. I'll ask her, how'd you sleep? Do you need to take a nap? Do you want some downtime? Those types of things. That's what I know? do with my son. And um, and he, he tells me, mom, you're being a question cannon. <laughs> <laughs> 
There are so many questions that come with a cancer diagnosis. In a marriage, in a partnership, it is a constant balancing act and a negotiation of roles and responsibilities. And when one partner has a chronic illness, it can disrupt the foundation and the role might need to shift and change a bit. I started several years ago with some side jobs to pay for my daughter's way to college in New York City. Along the way, I decided that that, once she graduated and all, I was probably going to stop doing that because it was just taking up too much time. And then this diagnosis came along a little later and and I, I do, my son and I do a lot of uh, side work on my days off to pay for uh, some of the medical bills, a lot of the deductibles, the out-of-pocket, stuff like that. So that's how my role has changed is, is I'm constant. I work seven days a week, pretty much year round, which I enjoy. I, I look at it as good cardio. Fortunately, my son, he's in college, but he, he helps a ton. Uh, he, he won't take a penny for it either. It's all. That seems like a pretty amazing opportunity to do that. And despite the fact that, you know, working seven days a week is certainly a lot. When you do that together, what, what's kind of the, the emotional side of it? Is it something that you're sort of grateful for the opportunity to do it as a way to contribute? Or is it something that is, uh, you know, an additional burden on you to do it? No, other than the physical toll, um, I don't ever look at it really as a burden at all. It's um, just look at it as an opportunity that, you know, I'm glad I'm able to do it. I'm glad I'm healthy enough to be able to do it. Could we get by if I didn't? Probably, but it makes it so much easier. Talking about assume, or how roles change is my son. You've got a kid in college that he's as much a caregiver as anybody. Um, it's amazing how he is taking care of his mom and he's taken her to treatments. He's, he's waited outside of hospitals during COVID when you couldn't enter for hours sitting in a parking lot. I think that's wonderful. It must make you so proud to, to see that, that he's able to contribute that way. It does. Yeah, I know I would be. Ted, I, I want to just turn to you for a minute. Tell me about your roles in your house. You know, what was the typical sort of division of power in your house and, and has it changed or has it stayed the same? And who are you guys to each other now? So you know, that's that's kind of an interesting question because we're still working through things because you know we're in wait and see. So what's that like for you? A lot of it's information gathering, right? So so understanding where the treatments are going. I mean, we're sort of lucky because we're in a biomedical industry, so there's a lot of interesting information. We actually have a few doctors in the family, so we're able to get information uh, from them as we need or where to look for the information. And Ted, when you do that. You know, when you're out there with your family or with, you know, on the internet or, or however you gather information, you know, as you're going through that, that, that takes a lot of mental energy to do that. It does. Is, is that something that you feel like that's something that you can contribute sort of as an expert in, you know, certainly more of an expert than, than a lay person who's not in the medical field? The terminology is just, as Scott can probably attest to, is is very difficult to navigate through, to understand. Yeah, you guys have had to learn a new language, right? Yeah, it's it's really, it's it's complex. You talk about proteins, you talk about markers, you, and, and it's moving so quickly. It's therapeutics, really. And it's, it's a puzzle to put together, to understand what are we talking about here? You know, what does this treatment look like versus this treatment? What will be effective? What are the risks? So we continually following that because we know that things are changing quickly. Scott, do you feel like that's been your experience too, that you're out there gathering information to solve a puzzle together? To an extent, she became the expert. I'm just more on the sidelines listening and learning from her. We went to a CLL meeting at a local chapter 
And um, it was like they were speaking in a complete different language. It's, uh, you know, um, so no, she's she's been more of the information gatherer. Tell me a little bit about your relationships with other people in your lives, like your friends and your extended family. So is that something that you each have taken on to communicate with the rest of your family and your friends about your wife's illness? I don't know about you, Ted. The first year, we didn't tell anybody. You didn't tell anyone? Immediate family members. That was it. So, well, I have to just stop you for a minute. What was that like? Were you still, you know, going out to dinner with friends or socializing with friends and not telling them this major thing you were going through? Yeah, and I did say a year, and one day she's going to listen to this podcast, and she's going to start correcting me on everything I said wrong. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to back off the year, but it was quite a while. It was, I, if you want to call it the coming out, was we announced it on Facebook, um, and the reason we did that is because she came to me and said, "Look, you were denied entry into the New York City Marathon this year." She said, "Now you have a reason to run for a charity." And I thought, wow, I do. And so I put on a $10,000 fundraiser out on Facebook and announced what we were going through and her diagnosis and all. And we asked for $10,000. And I think I had $7,000 in the first hour and a half. Wow. What did did that feel like? Did it it feel like? Overwhelming. Overwhelming. You know, a lot of people reached out and said, if there's anything we can. I mean, it was amazing. Some of the offers that you get um, and still do. You know, when, it, when you do talk about relationships, you know, we're, we're obviously going to the treatment stages and all that. But I have seen that uh, my relationships with people are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, not on not because of them, but because of me, I guess. You know, I don't even realize it. And then all of a sudden, one day you realize, you know what, I really hadn't called any friends in probably two weeks because you just you just I, you, I felt like I get more to myself. Do you think that's because, you know, your mental energy is so spent? Yes, yes, both of us. Just busy, busy, busy. Um, yeah, you're working seven days a week. You have a family to, you know, to think about. And you're- We um, actually, a daughter, a son who she met at college, they got married. They have, uh, we have brand new twin grandbabies and their dog all live with us now. They're, they're having a brand new house built. So they moved in with us, with my son, wife and I, and our dog. So, During the global pandemic. Yeah, right now, right now. So, you know, that's probably why I enjoy being away working seven days a week. I bet. So when you say that you're a little isolated, you know, you're living in a house with a ton of people, a lot going on. You're working constantly. What do you do to to recharge? Run. I always say that I wish I was someone that running recharged me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, no, I, I, I wake up at 3.15 every morning and uh, I don't run at every 3:15. morning. 3.15. Three, we start early here on the golf course, though. So, um, but I I try to run about four days a week, and of those, uh, but I still I just, that's my wake up time, and I get started early, and and uh, running is without a doubt what keeps my mind clear. I couldn't do this without running. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great to have that. Ted, tell me a little bit um, just about how has Laura's leukemia diagnosis affected your relationships outside of your immediate home? Nothing's really changed as far as our work routine right now. It's what we do in the evenings and on the weekends and the time that we get to take off what we do. Her family still does not know. Um, and and I leave it up to her of who she wants to tell and who she does not want to tell. Yeah. Um, I think that that's her personal decision. And, and I respect that. You know, I tend to wear everything on my sleeve. She's not that way. She's a little more 
close to the vest. And, and I, again, I respect that. So I, I go along with what she wants. Do you ever wonder if maybe she's going through stuff emotionally or physically that she's not sharing with you? We're sort of define ourselves as soulmates and I can read her really well and she can read me really well. And, um, she's been sick before prior to this with nothing serious, just, and we always laugh because you would never know she had a fever or wasn't feeling well or, and me, I'm, my mom always said, I'm Drew Barrymore. I'm, you know, I, Oh, <laughs> I'm not going to make it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you get the man flu. You're one yeah, of those. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then how do the two of you communicate about what she needs? You know, and I, I tell her all the time, I remind her, which is probably good for me to say, you know, look, if you're not feeling well, you need to tell me so that, that you can get your downtime. And what about when you're not feeling well, though? <laughs> no, really? I mean, what about when you're struggling with the stress that this causes? What What do you do? You know, I, I go fishing. I take the dogs for long walks. I go get on my mountain bike and do a ride. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's just the release. And, and it, in a way, it's kind of interesting because... You know, the stress I used to feel at work is nothing really anymore. It, you, you put everything into perspective. Yeah, it's all relative. And I've always been pretty good at releasing stress. That is a fantastic trait to have. <laughs> I mean, really, that's not something I hear very often. I'm really good at releasing stress. Yeah, I, I think I'm lucky in that way. I, I've always been able to kind of do that. Scott, do you ever wonder if your wife is keeping how she feels from you in an effort to kind of make it a little easier on you? Oh, I can answer this one really easy. Yeah. She, she holds a lot from me. Uh, and, and some of that, uh, a part of that is my fault. Um, at the risk of losing husband of the year award, I'm going to go ahead and be honest. Um, I was a little insensitive a couple of times and I guess one day I didn't even remember. I kind of said something about when are you finally going to just feel good for a day? And just it did, because it was, I remember just every time I saw her, she, she just looked miserable. And I just got so tired of seeing that. And I, I guess I said it, didn't realize it. And then a couple of months later, and I can't even remember what it was, but there was something. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me that? She says, there's a lot I don't tell you now. I don't want to stress you. I don't want to bother you anymore. You just seems to bother you when you hear me complain about another ache or another pain or something that's not feeling right. I understand what you're saying that it, that, you know, it maybe led to her deciding that she wanted to shelter you from it a little bit more. But I think that's the nature of marriage is to not, you know, want to see the other person suffer. So, you know, you're voicing that you don't want her to suffer. She's voicing that she sometimes does what she can to prevent you from shouldering more. It doesn't sound so insensitive to me. It, it sounds very natural to me. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But it's, you know, perception is sometimes reality. And she <laughs> she perceived it as me being insensitive, I guess. Because like I said earlier, I have no idea how she feels. I can't, I can't even imagine because I'm not the one going through what she's going through right now. Do you think she knows how you feel? Probably. I don't, I don't hide as much. I'm a little more vocal than she is. She's the one that hides stuff. I mean, she's good at keeping really quiet. She's the kind, she's not a complainer. Like uh, the COVID vaccine, you would have thought that it was the end of the world for me after the second shot. I mean, I, I let the entire world know that, that death was on my doorstep. And then later she goes, oh, yeah, I had all those symptoms to the second shot. I said, what? I don't remember you <laughs> feeling like this. <laughs> she says, well, I didn't walk around complaining about it like you did. But Does it feel a little bit 
you know, less stressful now that that COVID is is at least, you know, getting a bit better? Well, it, it did. It did for a while. And now all of a sudden it's starting to uh, to, to surge again here in yeah. uh, Texas. And and, uh, you know, there for a while, I'm like, there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. But sometimes that light's a train. So you got to be careful. And <laughs> One of the things that I, that I wanted to make sure we talked about was what is your life hack for being a caretaker? And I realized that I'm using that word in a way that, you know, isn't kind of the traditional sense and that you both have your unique stories. But what have you learned that, that you feel like, oh, this is something, this is a tool I've learned that helps my situation or helps, you know, anyone going through this kind of journey? I'll go into a shell um, and don't do that learn more, ask more questions, be more sensitive. Uh, think about what you say before you say it. I think if I, if I showed a little bit more concern at times, I, I think I would, I would recommend that to anybody is just be involved, you know, listen, 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 don't do any of the talking. Just realize that, that they're going through something you can't even imagine from a more emotional type contribution. I, I, I probably should have been a lot better. I get so busy that I'm not there with her as much as I should be. We're a little different with our timings and all throughout all this, Ted and I are, but I just, you know, feel like we've both gone down our own little paths of concern. Ted, how about you? Do you have like, you know, a life hack or two that you feel like, you know, this works, this helps, this is a good way to do this job of, of taking care of a spouse with this illness? Yeah, well, I mean, I think Scott named a lot of those things. One is t to listen. You know, don't don't interrupt the train of thought of the person, because in all honesty, we really don't know what it's like to be in their shoes. I mean, let's face it, leukemia. I mean, that would be scary. I can't even imagine what she thinks at times or I'm sure she has thoughts when she's awake at night to say, wow, how did I get here and why me? And, you know, so I, I always try to make sure I, I listen. And and I think the one thing that's really important is don't make assumptions I mean, really just find out the facts and, and make sure that, you know, talk to the person. And Laura would tell you, put a positive spin on everything. You know, attitude is is all part of the game. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's the message that she delivers me. Uh, would you mind if I jump back just a second and answered a question? From Absolutely. A Go ahead. Uh, the last question you asked me, if I could tell someone one piece of advice that I think would be good, I would think that everybody would automatically do this anyway. But in the, especially in the initial stages, I don't care how minor her visit is to a healthcare provider, be there, no matter how small the visit is. If they will allow you to be in there with your spouse during treatment, don't miss that for anything in the world. I think that's, I'm sure that's very good advice because you know what they say, like 99% of whatever it is, is showing up, right? So being there is a big deal, even if you're just doing nothing else other than being there. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. So tell me about making this suck less. What could sort of the world do or healthcare or what, you know, what, what would help? As far as my letting it, making it suck less is just trying to make things more fun. But like this year, I mean, I've always been very interested in my yard and, and taking care of it and stuff. Well, I've gone above and beyond this year as I have, it, it blinds you when you drive by all the color, all the flowers and all the different plants I've brought home and, and I've got just, it's just, and she, she loves color. She loves plants. And I've got the whole front of the house just 
covered in flowers. Live life as much as you can live it, considering what all you're going through. Because it does suck. It does suck a lot. Ted, do you think, is there anything that you feel like this would help? This would make it better? You know, and, and, and being being involved with the CLL Society, I mean, we get to hear from a lot of different people and talk to a lot of different people. The overall message that I hear is about healthcare, you know, and the insurance. It, something has to improve. You know, there's nothing we're going through right now. We're in wait and see. But but so many people that are, you know, older, 70s, 60s, 70s, I mean, a lot of this CLL affects people who, who are older in the age and and they're retired. And they have no means. I mean, they're struggling. And that's what our number one concern is now is how are we going to afford insurance when we get to our retirement? It takes a lot of work. It's a lot of energy to to worry about the insurance than to rather focus on yourself and, and making sure that you can, you know, take care of yourself, really. Does that ring true to you, Scott, as well? Yeah, that's just that's a lot of the stuff we haven't really spoken about, but those those fears are huge. Just, you know, like he said, healthcare has to improve. Those are fears in the back of my mind. We don't even discuss them really. It's just something that right. it's just I don't I don't look at it. It, it wouldn't really help our situation by worrying about it and I mean it's something that I work on in my mind, but yeah, it's very concerning, very Relationships, even at their healthiest, can be a challenge, but throw in a cancer diagnosis and it can really test a couple. It can also sometimes be an opportunity to grow closer together. Ted, I had to talk to you about the fact that you were not yet even married to Laura when she was diagnosed. You were engaged though, right? Correct. We were engaged and we had set the date and wow, this, you know, three months, it was in June when she was diagnosed. We got married in September. Did it change how you felt about the the concept of getting married? No, I, and I think she was very nervous about that. I, I don't know why. I mean, she she knew me very well. We had been friends for a long time. Uh, at least that's kind of what I got from the way that she kind of presented it to me, which was in a bit disbelief. But then I think I felt this little bit of nervousness, like, what's Ted going to say? Is he going to run or... But I think in the end, I mean, she knew that that wasn't the answer and that, that, you know, I mean, I sat her down and reassured her, you know, that we'll tackle this together and we'll continue to move through um, our marriage and that, you know, that, that I loved her very much and would be by her side no matter what. Um, so, I, and I, I think she needed to hear that because I should think she had been disappointed before in her life. And, you know, that I think it's difficult um, yeah. when you're faced with adversity. So you you were engaged when she was diagnosed. Yes. Yeah. And you had every chance in the world to walk away, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that's right. That's right. The world needs a few more Ted's. I just want to let you know. That. <laughs> Not right. That's pretty awesome. It, it is. Well, thank you. I would hope that most of us would do exactly what you did, whether it yeah. be male or female. I would hope that in this world, most of us would do that. But- the fact that you did, I just want to tell you, that's pretty impressive, and I admire that. Well, thanks. It, it, to me, it was never even crossed my mind, but I I think it did hers. Like I said, when we had the conversation, I was like, whoa, 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 that's not me. Don't, you know. So, I mean, it was kind of an interesting 
Yeah. I mean, but thank you. I, I appreciate You're that. Welcome. So it's amazing. Listening to your stories is amazing. It, it's you're an inspiration, both of you. I mean, it's just incredible. That's funny because I don't think of it that way. I, I'm, I'm thinking the very same thing. I, like when there's nothing special about me. <laughs> Not true. Really? I mean, yeah. No, we. You know, love is love. <laughs> so that's that's the way I look at it. Once again, through their kindness and vulnerability, two people, two strangers came together and became resources for each other. So our life hack takeaway from this episode is the simple act of listening. Just show up and listen to each other. We hope you'll join us for our next episode as I talk with two women in very different life phases who share the wisdom they've gained from their parents' journey with CLL. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your caregiver life hack in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Caregiver Life Hacks is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our host is Allura Nanos. Caregiver Life Hacks is recorded by Ariel Nachman, mixed and edited by Kyle Moore, and written by Joey Brenneman. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>